At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to a supplemental free bonus episode of Weird Signal. I'm Sean and I'm here with... Lucy. Yeah, you are Lucy, Me, aren't hi. you? We're recording in the same room for the first time since... February, February, yeah, February two thousand and twenty, uh, where we did an episode about Donnie Darko that you might remember. And we've chosen this like auspicious kind of experimental episode where we don't really know what's going on, and <laughs> only one of us has really done any research before today uh, to to herald this fact that you're know, to celebrate this thing. But you know why not? You know, I, I resent the implication, but I've done no research. I watched the film as well, by which I mean about an hour ago we watched the film together, and I scribbled some notes down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so what this episode is going to be, we because we hadn't podcasted in such a long time, when we got to the end of our episode about Pulse, we felt that there was more to be said about genre and J-horror and so on, which Lucy is going to be uh, taking us through. Uh, I did no preparation whatsoever um, because I had a, an interview and I really needed to prepare for that. Mm. Um, and we all so, wish him the best of luck. Thank you. Well, I've, already, I've had the interview now and hopefully by the time this comes out, I will know the answer. <laughs> that was that just was my Bluetooth speaker switching <laughs> off. <laughs> We are so uh, fucking pro on this show. Oh, Christ. Right, so yes, so uh, Lucy's going to be taking us through some more notes about Japanese horror, and then I am going to be kind of trusting in the spirit a little bit, I'm going to be talking about a f- another film entirely, which we just watched. I'm also going to be talking about that film. I think we should, you know, I think it's... Uh, should we say the yeah, film? Yeah, we can say the film, because uh, we're not doing the whole, like, delay speaking about the film, because this episode isn't about that film, it just happens to feature it. But the film is Marabito. Marabito, which, Luce, you mentioned to me uh, when we recorded the episode on Pulse, and we just watched it just, just now, in fact. And so... it, it turns out, like, uh, described it completely inaccurately, Very... based on probably like either some poor scholarship or more likely a misreading on my part of like what film I was actually reading about being described so there is actually possibly another um canonically rhizomatic um Japanese horror film out there which isn't Marabito um but is kind of more so than Pulse. I'd say this is pretty rhizomatic but let's Put the pin in that right now because we are going to be talking about Leans Over J Horror and yeah. the genre that never was. Take it away, Lucy. Oof, well, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so basically, well, I think I just also wanted to say, like, you know, it seemed just a damn shame to have a whole episode about uh, sort of Japanese horror in um, in you know the the late in the nineties and the early twenty oh. Or 2000s. Early 2000s. <laughs> I can't say decades. Um, <laughs> and so basically, like, yeah, because I mean, there was a lot of good stuff. And also, I happened to be going through my teens when, like, a lot of this was still coming out or a lot of it was entering the cultural sphere. I believe I saw the American remake of Ring um, in the cinema featuring, I believe, Naomi Watts. And it has that guy who I keep mixing up with Rip Torn. Um, don't, don't ask me. I Brian can't. Cox. Brian Cox is in it. Yeah, Brian Cox is—he's cool. a kind of a horse breeder who is. Oh, in, does he get sewn into his horse or something? Or no, I... you're thinking of that episode of Hannibal. Oh yes, so I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm certain that I've seen the American remake. I've definitely—I have seen the original Japanese. I went to the cinema to see it um, uh, a few years ago, and uh, I remember watching. I, yeah, I'm certain that I have. But what I remember specifically about the experience was. Um, I was watching it with one of my flatmates in my first year of university and we were going through the DVD menu because this was the past Mm -hmm. and um, one of the options that came up, it was an easter egg, was like, don't press here. So Mm -hmm. I said, oh, let's go on then. And what actually was, (laughs) this is weird, because initially we thought we were watching the film, but it turned out to actually be kind of like a deleted scenes montage, but in the sense of it not being like... um, uh, you know, so like rough cut deleted scenes, like they'd taken like a load of like deleted footage and like spliced it together to make sort of like a five minute like surrealist short of just like shit happening. I'm certain that we did watch the rest of the film afterwards because he, oh yeah, fuck, because he kills himself by putting the radiator and no, no, it's the a horse tape recorder or something. No, 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 no the, the, the um, 
Oh, what do you call it? What do you put Bridal. in a horse's mouth? Bridle. The, the, the bit. bit. He puts the bit in his mouth and electrocutes himself. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah. yeah uh, so, obviously, it didn't make an enormous impression on me because, like, right up until this moment, I couldn't confidently say I'd watch the remake. <laughs> but uh, Whereas I, you know, I think my, my life, my various life choices and my, my kind of aesthetic and my general vibe was shaped by the films of that decade from that country in that continent of Asia being Japan. You very much and, are kind of like a two. 2002 of a person, aren't you? Yeah, and yeah, I, I talk a lot about that. I, I kind of keep zeroing in on, on 2002 as like some sort of like weird, not a golden age by any stretch, but like the coming together of some niche forces that are hitherto underappreciated in the realms of new metal and like mostly bad horror cinema. And, you know, I won't defend it. I don't think it was a particularly happy year for me, but for some reason I have, you know, it's like in the same way uh, Panos Cosmatos has something about the year 1983 that he can't get over, I'm like that with 2002. So yeah. you can make of that what you will. Yeah. But basically, what this is an extremely roundabout way of saying is that there was a lot of Japanese horror from those two and a bit, one and a bit decades, <laughs> unless you count some of the late 80s examples, which I will differentiate from in, the, in a minute. But yeah, like, it felt bad to kind of like, you know, talk about so much that was pertinent to that, you know, sub slash micro slash questionable genre and only mentioned one film so like you know we've got i mean just to run through a bunch of the classics so we've got ring uh we've got hideo nakata's other films including don't look up uh i believe there was like sequels to the ring i don't know if nakata directed those but like they were by the same like though it was continuous source material there were like three books i think in total um and there were things where like it there was um I think he later did the one the um oh fuck what is it it's not the eye the one the dark water the one that was uh the eerie foreshadowing of the Eliza Lamb case mm. um but yeah like it's basically yeah there was there was some good shit and um I wanted to just talk about some things particularly because like I don't know when I started researching for this episode and like Wanted to kind of pin down a definition of J-horror. I think I mentioned briefly that it was something difficult to pin down. Um, one of the first things I came to was a chapter in a text. I believe it's... Um, I think it was either Horror to the Extreme or Transnational Japanese Horror of uh, Cinema of the Sensations. Which took a very Deleuzean bent. But um, basically it was saying, like, yeah, J-horror wasn't really a thing. And also, um, I think, like, this sentiment, a lot of it gravitates around, like a particular article published in 2005, which I actually have in front of me, uh, called, like, the death of J-horror, question mark, which there was a kind of, like, argument that J-horror was never really a thing, um, and this idea that, like, it was, um, it was just kind of, there were a handful of popular films, a lot of kind of derivative films, and, um, a lot of just sort of, you know, I think it was, like, there's this idea that it was, like, once it was over, it was, like, well, the, the, the kind of process of auto-cannibalization uh, signaled its demise, but there's also, like, the argument that the invention of a genre um, was pretty much entirely a marketing thing, and it was even ambiguous then, because, you know, um, this was... So I think it was around the, you know, the, the term J-horror obviously wasn't, the Japanese weren't calling it that. Um, unless they were, actually. But um, <laughs> but no, it was stuff like Tartan Asian Extreme and stuff. But yeah. Yeah, and no, I was going to say, this reminds me almost a little bit about um, the storied history of folk horror, mm. like etymologically. But, you know, there was no such thing as folk horror until like... I don't know, like ninth, twenty ten, yeah, whenever, like whenever. Um, oh, oh, God, whenever. what's his name? Mark Gatiss. I confuse. Uh, yeah. I conf like in my head, I just it's dropped like... from Mark Kermo to Fisher, but to Gatiss in very quick succession. Uh, he's grouping it together. I, I, I'm not quite sure if he was like the guy who, I and mean, he certainly popularized it. But mm. so, are you saying that our term J horror is a sort of like is it kind of like is a post facto kind of designation on? A series of, of like a grouping of, of of horror films that didn't actually have anything necessarily in common with them except the fact that they were Japanese and they were being like distributed by well like you um, said by like Tartan yeah. Extreme and so um, on. Well, which is obviously yeah. like sorry if I'm jumping ahead with, yeah. with the stuff that you no, want to no, talk yeah. about, but obviously a lot of that stuff you know like a name like because it was Tartan Asian Extreme specifically yeah. wasn't it? Because there was like is, uh, there was it, like the K horror, which you know again another like uh, Western appellation that seems a bit like you know just like. 
<laughs> one of Japan, but like Japan Junior, because we've only just realised <laughs> they're also making films. But it almost um, strikes me a little bit like you know what's going on there is the. So I don't. I have absolutely no intention of stirring up any like latent geopolitical tensions <laughs> around referring to Korea as Japan Junior. Like that's purely. <laughs> I, I purely frame that as a criticism of sloppy marketing and scholarship on the part of uh, Brits and Americans. However, however, um, <laughs> something taking like a strong pro show response here. Um, the um, oh Christ, what was I saying? Yeah, so what a lot of that you think like marketing, like Tartan Asian extreme right, is banking on is you know so like the Western conception of you know so like the unique cruelty of of of, of the Orient though, isn't it? So mm. the like which is you know very well established like uh, which is very well established um trope obviously the idea there's something sort of like specifically cruel about um the cultures of the far east which is mm-hmm. that which goes back to sort of like, you know 19th century conceptions of the world mm-hmm. and like yeah and but like and also it's just that that general thing of like can we talk about any kind of nation cinema um, without, you know, just essentializing. But as we as we talked about with regard to, like, you know, the Marilyn Ivy essay, which I think I referenced many times but didn't actually name. Or, <laughs> I, I named the essay. It was the thing, um, you know, uh, Discourses of Vanishing by Marilyn Ivy was the author who I didn't name. But basically, like, there was, there is a certain kind of, like, well, as far as she's concerned, a, um, a certain kind of, like, self-homogenization that, or kind of adoption of an external kind of definition of Japaneseness that was, you know, internalized as a kind of as as a kind of part of some loose national project um, by certain, you know, cultural influences in some capacity. But um, but at the same time, it's like I don't know. I guess um, yeah, you know, it's a fraught thing, but I don't think it's an impossible thing because, like, well, the reason why. We're spending so much time on this is because I kind of fundamentally disagree with with the argument that J horror wasn't a thing. I just think it was misleading to call it J horror because um, basically it was coined to it was coined to describe th- films like The Grudge, The Ring, like Dark Water, and like some lesser known examples like Don't Look Up and things. Um, pretty much describing you know spooky you know. Um, you know, the films that are very ghost orientated, but like ghost and spooky media oriented, and like all those films I've listed are, have that in common. Um, but then, just because pe- because it became a marketing thing, and because people wanted to rope stuff together, they roped in, um, they roped in, uh, you know, stuff like uh, Takeshi Miike's films as J horror, and even like described uh, Battle Royale as J horror, and it's like. Really not. That's barely, you know, it's it's, barely it's a horror bracing, film. yes, yeah, but it's, it's not horror. It's yeah. like dystopian sci-fi, and it's um, well, again, yeah. it's, tra- it's trading on sort of like imagery of the inherent sort of like excessive cruelty of mm. you know sort of like uh, the culture and you know the media of. Uh, of of the Far East that we designate, you know, I know that's like I don't know. It, feel, it feels certainly feels like a colonialist term to talk about mm. the Far East, but that's kind of the point, though, isn't it? Yeah. But that we're dealing, but we're dealing with uh, Western projections mm. of uh, the culture of the country. Yeah, but to cut to the heart of the matter, I would argue that there is something that you know. Let's not call it J horror. I'm not going to try and coin a term now for a for a, a nominally defunct genre, but. Films that centre around ghosts, around spooky media, and around kind of like post-economic uh, crisis, urban malaise. Um, I think that was enough of a coherent thing that wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just because it was popular, it was responding to common cultural currents, uh, which had a, all of which and had a, you know, specific pertinence to Japanese audiences that also just happened to resonate internationally. Yes. And whatever you want to call that, I would argue that that is the thing that should be, you know, classed under J-horror. And, and oh, the other kind of categorization thing that I would apply to it is that it it taps into specifically Japanese folk traditions in a very specific way. Um, so, you know, and, and you know, and, and that's something I wanted to kind of, like, articulate in sort of the points that I wasn't able to fit into the episode. But... I mean, that, that just brings us back to the whole thing about the death of J-horror. Um, the argument that's put there is that, like, uh, they, the author, uh, Nicholas Ruka, seems to be um, essentially, like, you know, it debate. it says, like, oh, you know, it's 
people think it's all just this one thing. It's long, you know, cursed pale girls with long black hair and spooky videos and stuff. And it's like, well, actually, there's a long and varied um, and storied kind of tradition of Japanese horror, which is both, which both reflects, you know, traditional folklore occurrence, but also reflects uh, specific um, kind of adaptations of imported ideas, like the, you know, he talks about Lafcadio Luf, uh, Han and the fact that, you know, that was sort of ultimately like a Western writing up, like grim, you know, grim story, grim fairy stories kind of collation of existing folktales. But we also have things like the tradition of eye novels, which was a kind of, basically when the Japanese discovered Edgar Allan Poe, there was like a kind of weird psychological um, sort of experimental fiction genre emerged around like the 1920s and 30s. Um, and in interestingly, like one of the most uh, notable examples um, of that genre is a guy who wrote under the um, nom de plume Edugawa Rampo, which if you say it uh, very quickly in accented Japanese is Edgar Rampo. So Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but yeah, basically it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know where I was going with that particular thing, but no, I want to focus on um, those films I've listed as urban post-crash post malaise connect with specific connections to urban legends. It almost feels to me like we're looking at a kind of inversion of the the spirit of the 90s in the West, you know, because, you know, the as we wax lyrical about so often here on Weird Signal, the night, you know, night after 1991, history's over, communism's finished, we have, you know, just like the gradual sort of like recalibrations of liberal capitalist democracy until we reach absolute perfection. Mm -hmm. uh, but in Japan, you know, that myth isn't as believable as it was in the Western world, because in the Western world we were enjoying good economic times in a way Japan was not, you know. They were having to, to, you know, to deal very squarely with failure of market economies and so on, which is, which, so you would expect it to produce a cinema that, de that deals with, like you said, you know, um, urban malaise in particular, and also, and this is just speculative stuff off the top of my head, but you know, so like the figure of the ghost as well, being this kind of, this presence which, un a presence which undermines the present, mm. after all, and, and the encounter of the ghost has to be, has to enforce a kind of radical uh, humility on your part, though, because you are encountering an impossibility, something which can't be. Uh, the dead returned mm. and this does all of the assumptions upon which we can build the modern rational order suddenly come cascading down because we because well, but there's a ghost now well i mean what it seems like to me is a bunch of sight and sound readers wanting to out well actually each other <laughs> you know, um, around like you know, the, the bfi canteen but um yeah i don't know like I, it's interesting you know it's actually pertinently mentioned ghosts because there is a specific, like, ghost... A specifically Japanese notion attached to ghosts, which I think plays into... You know, is is very visible in J-horror. Um, you know, what we're calling J-horror. Um, that I want to go to, into a bit. But I think the first thing I want to focus on is the, the urban legend aspect. Because, uh, you know, these are crucially very... Even though, like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Ring, notably, is you know, one could argue it's a road movie, but it's, uh, and part, uh, part's boat movie, um, but... It should be uh, more boat movies. Yeah, good boat movies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, let's, let's, that's our next supplementary episode, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Without tipping my hat too much to what our next, you know, flagship film episode is oh, going to be, other than the shit. fact that it's got a boat in it. Um, but... <laughs> it's Titanic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Titanic 2, the refloating. <laughs> um, that doesn't exist. I'm just lying on the internet again. But yeah, so urban legends. Uh, there is a very literal connection between um, what we're calling J-horror and urban legends as a genre, which is the fact that um, shit was looking bad, like pretty bad economically in... Um, in Japan around the year 1991, and so the main things getting made were things that could turn a tidy profit without 
a particularly elaborate or you know particularly elaborate staging or high budget shit and it's like well what about urban legends what about just shit happening in familiar contexts um yeah all right um and one of i think uh, what's the so I'm just looking at the titles of the name, the poorly labeled names of PDF chapters I've um, <laughs> cut up. Um, I think this is something that is pointed out in, I'm going to go with uh, Nightmare Japan, the, the John McCroy book. But yeah, like he traces a bit of a timeline of like where where this where this actually started and because people talk about um Hideo Nakata's two films Ring uh 1998 and his lesser known one before that which is called Don't Look Up but there was apparently um a director called uh Suruta Norio um who had a straight to video anthology um called Scary True Stories or Honto ni Ata Kawaii Hanashi um, which ran from 1991 to 1992, and I'm desperate to find a viable torrent of someone, please see that. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically it's just like, this, this was, this turned out to be a hit as well, though. I mean, one thing actually, if we're talking about like, genre and replicability and stuff, it's worth pointing out that like, apparently Ring was not just, um, the highest grossing horror film in Japan, it was the highest grossing film in Japan at that time, both <laughs> nationally and internationally. It's not, um, and it's, it stands to reason there might be some derivatives of that, um, uh, culminating in Sadako versus The Grudge Girl. Um, <laughs> and, um, but also I think there is, you know, a, a reason for the popularity, which I think I would trace back to the conditions of uh, 1990s Japan that we articulated in um, in the thing, um, which is basically um, dissolute. Well, essentially, this is feeding into the urban legend things. Like, what is an urban legend but an appropriation of space? Specifically, an appropriation, you know, a co-option of space by people who don't own that space but want to kind of imprint their own meaning onto it. So, you know, a lot of these things take place in, you know, your classic urban legend setting might be, you know, a fact, a disused factory or some like kind of low dive bar or an abandoned hospital or something. I'm not referring to actual works of art, but this is, you know, the tropes that wind up in games and shit. But it's like, you know, these are big systems that have um, connections to both um, public institutions and international... Um, national and international economic interests, which, um, you know, are constructed by forces more powerful and, um, and sophisticated than, you know, the individual is ever able to properly comprehend, or even any individual is properly able to comprehend, even those on the inside. So these are basically big alien structures emerging, and what do you want to do, what do you do with these to make them your own in some way? You put your fears into them, or you kind of, like, you mythologize them yourself. You make them into uh, part of your own kind of urban milieu. And I think, you know, that's... I think that's something that is at the at the core of the urban legend tradition. And, yeah, and I just think, like, well, it's pretty easy to see, you know, where the temptation to do that came for, um, like, a Japanese filmmaker in the 1990s. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to dispute that. I mean, that's... This is my um, kind of jumping off point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, d- yes, yeah. yes. How, how about that we make this a debate? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. My other, my other thing I kind of wanted to just like put out there was this: like, is the idea that like um, urban legends are unique products of their time? Like, there's a lot of like discourse. I mean, maybe this is a point you want to. No, 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 I mean, finish your point, but I I do have stuff I want to say, yeah. Yeah, we need to, we're we're still finalising the hand system. But, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, basically... One of us will have to learn the semaphore. Yeah. (laughs) No, you go. No, I I can wait. I can wait. That's my chair sinking. Um, Basically, we've been drinking. Uh, Basically, like, there's some scholarship out there um, that basically says, like, you know, tries to approach urban legends like a kind of modernization of existing trends. And, you know, there was, there was a podcast I was very fond of for a while called, uh, I can't remember, I think it was called something like Just a Story, and it looks at, like, oh, here's an urban legend about, like, 
a poison dress and oh there was a story that appeared like in the 20s and oh actually this goes back to the legend of Medea killing Jason's lover or something uh, and it's that like sounds suspect but well <laughs> yeah I mean like yeah these are these are things that people are worried by but I think like one of the things that is specific, I think, I think specifically makes an urban legend is the fact that it is shaped by something that is not reproducible across history that is specific to a time period. Yeah, I think I think if, I think if that's your grand theory of like the origin of the urban legend, you need something a little bit like firm events of like, well, people tend to be a bit worried about this, you know. So like, I, I would hate <laughs> to wear a poison dress. I, you know? Your bloody hell, so would I. Yeah, um, it's some kind of like. Oh, it sounds like something like shitty pseudo Jungianism almost. Well, but... they were very sweet. I think they were a husband and wife. <laughs> oh, uh, I feel bad now. I mean, I don't even know what this podcast is. Let's give them a shout out. I mean, like. Do they follow they've us? They've got a handful of pretty good episodes, and, like, I think they were the ones who pointed me to Candle Cove originally. Actually, wait, no, they weren't. Um, no, I found out about that independently. Oh, never mind um, then. Yeah, yeah. I'm... They're entertaining. Um, <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> So this is this is the whole stop, kind of like... stop. They're already dead. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no. Let's okay. Let's cut straight I to ha- ghosts. No, you have a point. I have to a make. point. No, I have a point. I want to make because um, <laughs> this is following on from what you were saying about urban legends, and I. What? Sorry, <laughs> that's the Simpsons reference. Like, it always works. It always, it's always it's a, it's a killer. It's a classic. Thank you. Um, yeah. No, what I was going to say though is this is also. This is also true of uh, of the internet and the urban legend as well. So, like the internet, come you know, explodes into our lives as an alien presence, and then you know, through through this this action of because uh, I really like this as a, as, as a notion, this kind of like um, reclamation through storytelling and myth making of you know, sort of like the increasingly alienating urban environment which is forced upon us, which we discover ourselves to be lost within. And that is the same kind of uh, thing that we have with the internet, you know, that we have, like, you know, as we've discussed in this podcast many times before, like, uh, you know, sort of this example of stuff like Slenderman, but um, of how the internet itself becomes this 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 space which we inhabit with our with a new folklore as well. And uh, originally, I was going to just basically sort of like talk through some of my favourite like internet urban legends, but I think that might be a little bit tedious. But but you know, I mean stuff like I mean stuff like um, the back rooms, for instance, is one that's come along quite recently. Which is it's not so much like an, an urban legend about the internet, but it's a kind of like thing that has been spread through uh, the internet and is very much drenched in like digital folklore the idea that you can uh, uh no clip your way out of uh, the universe and end up in kind of like the substrata of reality mm-hmm. which manifests as an endless series of like liminal corridors mm-hmm. um and uh, and also sort of like as i think we as i think i didn't mention last time actually you know sort of like quite like bleak and nasty stuff like legends about like the red rooms you can find if you go onto the uh dark side of the internet and uh, there's also a very very fun and very stupid thing of the marinara the oh what's the name it's not the marinara that's a kind of past marinara sauce. trench the um <laughs> the mariachi mariachi trench it's the... not called that, but we'll go with that. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? The, 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 the big fuck off trench. The, in the messianic ocean. trench. <laughs> uh, but yeah, someone someone who like put someone read it like put together this sort of like um, all the different layers of the internet, like mo- all of the stuff they don't want you to know about, which ultimately culminates in this kind of like, and, like I want someone to write this story. Basically, I want someone to write this like cyberpunk horror. So like at the depths of it, there's this kind of like informational soup where where there lurks some kind of an entity that was detected in the nineties. It's like that resemble crabs, <laughs> because like evolution keeps inventing crabs, and keep inventing so will crabs. cyber evolution, yeah. post humanity. Oh my god, what would the actual what would like the carcinization of digital code look like? Kind of oh, like um, someone write that, patterns, like those tanks in that game from like the eighties. They mean Tron, like Tron, but crab. Well, it would look like Tron. I mean, like, what else do you want? You can't see this shit. It's, it's electricity <laughs> and numbers. All of my all of my stories have a message or a theme, and sometimes it's very simple. Like, what if there were crabs in Tron? <laughs> <laughs> what if there were crabs in the internet? <laughs> Uh, the raw data. To, to be clear, to be clear, listener, this is the third time Lucy and I have seen each other in a year and a half. We're, we're a bit very, giddy. we're very enthusiastic right mm. now. We did do brunch that time. 
Well, like, well, that didn't. Well, yes, but like, yeah. that was that was the first time. Oh wasn't shit! It? Yeah, no, it wasn't that was good. last year. Oh. I saw you once last year. Yeah. Although twice because I actually there was the the before time yes. visitation when we did the Donnie Darth. Yeah, this yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. Anyway, anyway, this anyway, is just housekeeping. Yeah, this is just making mouth noises now. Um, <laughs> cool. Do you have more to say? I have or, a bit more to say. Got a bit more to say. Okay, then we'll, well, then we'll move on to ghosts. Marabito. Ghosts and demons and goblins um, in Japan. Uh, so basically, like. I don't know, one of the things I was going to just point out is, and this is something I think we briefly touched on when we were talking about, like, what is the Forbidden Room in Pulse? Um, The idea that, like, I don't know, this just seems to be a thing that comes up that Japanese ghost stuff, it's not not pinned to specific incidences so much as it is um, the result of accumulation of, like, mass feelings or over either through large numbers of people or through time. You know, that idea that, like, the whole, like, big event happening in um, Impulse was, you know, the rupture of too many souls because, like, hell is full. But obviously that's a, like, you know, not... I'm, I'm talking about Dawn of the Dead there, not Pulse. But, um, <laughs> but no, like, I think this is something specifically, Jap- like, specifically, you know, c- a continuation from Japanese folklore um, where... I don't know, we see it in things like, it forms a kind of, like, I don't know if it, like, relates to animism, because I don't know what animism is necessarily, but, um, I don't know, just to throw out an example, um, there is, um, the tradition of artifact demons, um, which is the idea of, like, um, the, the most famous one being, like, the, the umbrella demon that was, you know, you've seen the umbrella demon, have sure. I seen the umbrella? I don't. I'm not sure. Look at this that. umbrella demon. Okay, Lucy Lucy's, is showing me an Lucy's umbrella opening... demon. Look at it go. Um, so yeah, oh, I love it. Yokai.com, uh, which is it's called translation AI or the many eyed or Miraji, a hereditary title used in Japan. So okay. Um, <laughs> so ooh, wait, testing my hiragana. Uh, muko muko. A. Ah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, if yes. not, yeah. So basically, if you leave your umbrella in the corner for too long, it becomes sad and you know it becomes damaged through neglect. It what? gathers dust and that cultivates bad feeling, and it becomes an umbrella demon. Yeah, I mean, like what you mentioned, animism just now. You know, yeah, so that, like, that's what I was. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, like, I mean, it's one of those very like scholarly, cont- scholarly. Uh, contested, uh, contested terms now, but uh, broadly speaking, it's it's it refers to you know the belief system that places things, ordinary objects, are inhabited by spirits with which we interact. Mm. It's like what and hippie mums think Gaia theory is. More or less, yeah. I mean, because and you know, I, I I have no I have no like any kind of sort of like um, qualification to talk authoritatively about Japanese religion or Shinto. But Shinto is basically and fundamentally is but Shinto is usually characterised as as an animistic religion because mm. it is tends to be very concerned with you know this notion that sort of the world is full of spirits and we interact with them as we interact with one another and with and with uh, places and objects hmm. so this is the kind of like this idea of uh it's very noisy water bottle <laughs> but the idea that that about objects like a videotape for instance or hmm. the internet could be the home of of spirits is a very <laughs> it gains data rather than gradually losing it. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, with the even yeah. notion that uh, yeah, but it can, but it, but it, that a uh, thing can be inhabited with a spirit like that is very mm-hmm. obviously it's not uh, unique to animistic cultures. You know, you know, we we have our own plethora of such things in the West as well. Mm. Um, Yes. Yeah. I was just going to say, that, like, but... there was a film I watched with my housemate Nick recently, and I've forgotten the title. But oh shit! I don't know. This is going to be really bad podcast etiquette if I just talk about a film but don't <laughs> name the film. But it starts out with the description of a cursed hole in a cornfield, and it's like it's about the events of like people doing terrible things to each other in the who are you know bandits and things living in the cornfield, but. The whole thing is that at the centre of only barber, is on, it? it's on a barber, yeah. yeah. And in the centre of the cornfield is this big, it's just a big evil hole, and it's just been a, a gradually growing dark and brooding and bitter and accumulating all the world's evil. And it's like 
this just seems to be like a pattern of like how uh, ghosts or objects or buildings or holes behave in like J Japanese kind of folkloric traditions that they they have this kind of like gradual accumulative evil and or tainting it's not even like intentional evil it's just like becomes anti antithetical to life um a film that does yeah. a very from a completely different a background but that's a very similar thing actually I want to mention just because it's a really good film is that under the skin mm -hmm. and actually and, 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 and like the relevance to this being but you know it's another non-western horror film dealing with um the spirit, we're dealing with sort of like the spirit world of its respective culture and, you know, and in this case have you have you seen under the skin i get it mixed up with the uh scarlett johansson thing set in scotland okay yeah, yeah it's under oh have, 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 have i been saying under the skin Yes. Sorry, I meant okay. uh, under the shadow. Under okay. the shadow. Ah. We should like that. Should, like this. Yeah, that should. That'd be really. Oh my god! Because this takes off like the mysterious <laughs> land of Scotland. <laughs> under the shadow. I mean, uh, under the shadow. Under the shadow. Under the shadow, which is um, set, which is um, it's not an Iranian made film, but set, but it, I think it was made in Jordan actually. But it's, but it was but it's, it's in Farsi, and it's about. Um, uh, it's it's set during the Iran Iraq War, and it's set in this like apartment block in Tehran. No, I have seen this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is all, and you know, and it's almost abandoned because everyone's left the city because of the war. And an Iraqi missile crashes in through the roof, and basically, it brings a jinn with it. And mm. what happens? And it's quite, and it is sort of like thematically and conceptually quite similar to what we have been describing, you know, as our alternative definition of J horror, mm. because you know, it is this uh, this thing out of folklore being brought in through a modern contrivance basically and it's, and actually it repeats like the beats i was saying just now about you know like the ghost being this thing that undermines modernity because mm. the main character protagonist in it is was a medical student before the islamic revolution and she regards herself as a rational you know woman of letters basically who doesn't mm. believe in all this nonsense about the jinn and and the spirit world because you're know, in, in 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 islam the jinn do have it's an entire world of their of their mm. own with their own courts and governments and states yeah. and so on but it's just like we can't interact with them or we're not really meant to interact with them but the jinn can interact with us and we can interact with them mm. but we're not really meant to and so but so it is again this thing of like the modern world being undermined by this intrusion out of the realm of the seemingly irrational and supernatural mm. uh oh, it's a really good film yeah. i really like under, mean, the shadow. under the shadow and you know what i also liked was under the skin with scarlett johansson yeah which is a Banger. different film i also quite enjoyed the very different source material by michael faber i didn't like it I didn't I get know, into the book. but i mean it was kind of weird but like i know that's for another episode do 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 um, but, yeah, talking I, about things they like. Yeah, the other. Well, I mean, that's that's, that's every that's episode of the podcast. Literally every episode of the podcast. <laughs> so the thing I was going to say is like you know, I know I mean, one I've been kind of becoming one. gradually aware of via um, the very good podcast Subliminal Jihad, which I've been listening to. Is like just the idea of gins, and I'm curious to learn more. Uh, but the other thing is like uh, those that Iraqi missile that's described in the film was probably US provided and probably <laughs> tipped with uranium. So I yeah. wouldn't be surprised if there's a co, uh, a co-evolutionary um, analogy between uh, Jin or Yokai and American imperialism represented by the very real, like, you know, um, Icor-esque Jin substance of uranium and... Um, fucking imperialism. Mm. Um, but basically, yeah, so that's that bringing us back to Japan. So, I don't know, I don't think I had much else to say. There's just a couple of points, I think. Um, I think there were, actually, no, there were two kind of things I wanted to talk about. So, we talked about the fact that, like, it's sort of weird that Pulse ended with an apocalypse scenario. Mm. Um, but <laughs> this is a thing that I, you know, if I'm going to say, you know, the thing... Let's just call it um, urban legend-based Japanese, but not exclusively, but essentially Japanese um, ghost cinema uh, rather than J-horror. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, so, I see why they went J-horror over that. Yeah, like. yeah. Uh, but basically, um, yeah, I, I think another kind of ca uh, thing that defines it is the fact that it seems to all... It seems to involve phenomena that can only be 
resolved in a narrative sense one of two ways. And it's either getting to the root of a thing or, and, you know, researching, finding its origins and, you know, that being the, the denouement is the discovery of its origins. But more often, and this, this chimes with the whole thing of it's like, it's not tied to a specific event or history, it is just an accumulation or a generalised phenomenon that it just spirals out and takes over everything. And, you know, it's, it's no surprise that there are at least two other very good examples of Japanese horror that match this pattern, aside from Pulse, which is, um, uh, Juwon, The Grudge, uh, that has the same thing. It's just like everyone just gets zombied by Japanese schoolgirls. Like, that's it. And it's like they, they, they just destroy the world. I think that's how it ends. I haven't seen it in 20 years. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. And the other thing is Tomie, which is a um, Junji Ito comic. But also, yeah, it's just like, it just escalates. It's just more and more Tomie is just emerging everywhere. Uh, I was just going to say, like, an interesting contrast to draw here is with Cabin in the Woods, the uh, Joss Whedon film mm -hmm. from however many years ago. Which I did because, not like. <laughs> uh, which I liked at the time because I was an idiot. Um, but yeah, because <laughs> one of the things with that is, you know, because you have all of these different, like, horror movie scenarios being played out, you know, and one of which is Japanese Ghost Schoolgirl. Uh, and the way that that ends in the film is they all get together and sing a, a Shinto prayer and the school and the ghost school girl who's trying to eat them all or whatever gets turned into a little frog. And I just go assert that I don't think that happens. That's not the kind of thing that happens mm. in this kind of film. Though. No. It doesn't end well for anybody. Like mm. it sounds racist. Yeah, I'll go with that. I'll yeah. go with Joss Whedon. And we just don't like Joss Whedon. Like, I mean, we don't no, have any no. reason to defend him artistically or as a human. No, like, except for sort of like, like maybe nostalgia for when we were teenagers and we all really liked Firefly and very much Cowboy Bebop and grew up. You know? You know? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anyway, um... You know? So, yeah, there's... The, I mean, there's another thing that... That also came up, which is like just uh, just just wrapping up, just mopping up some leftover points that I forgot to mention in the pulse film. But like the voice of authority is interesting as a kind of dislocated thing, and this I don't know. I just uh, this is just like a very good moment in the film Pulse, where it's just like the TV is just listlessly repeat, you know, uh, listing listlessly listing the names of people who have disappeared, and it's all the people who've been warped by ghosts, and it's like okay. Like, yeah, we're just going to say this and we're not going to do anything. And it's like, we can't do anything because we have no idea what's going on because, you know, we're at the top. We're the voice of authority. It's like the birds, you know, you're all waiting for the BBC to tell you it's fine. But actually, no, we have no solutions here. And it's like, I don't know, I just think that's a very good detail. And that sort of occurs, that presence of the media is in another film from Japan called Marabito. Marabito, which we watched about two hours ago, and then we had chicken burgers. Yeah. Very good chicken burgers. Speedily <laughs> brought to us. Um, yes, so, Marabito. Um, oh, God. This is a difficult one to talk about. So yeah, Especially because it hasn't really sunk in yet what the fuck that was. <laughs> yeah, okay, so this is what we meant about this being an experimental episode. There's no theory, no quotes being brought in here. This is just, okay, this, this is, is not a place of honour. <laughs> No great deed is going to be commemorated here. Um, um, let's yeah. fucking go. Okay, Marabito, 2004, drop my pen. Uh, it's got Shinya Tsukamoto in it. What was he in? Yeah, okay, well, he was in Tetsuo, the Iron Man, which he also directed. He played the metal fetishist. Yeah. And he plays a fetishist again in this. Yeah. Uh, just, okay, just a less like, wholesome fetishist. <laughs> just like to run through like the key... Like, yeah, let's the, start at the beginning. The key details, uh, 2004, directed by Takashi Shimitsu, starring Shinyu Sakamoto and Tomami uh, Miyashita. Uh, sorry for horrible pronunciation. Uh, so this is... Uh, okay. This is a di very difficult film to place and describe. It's, 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 it's essentially a found footage movie which isn't a found footage movie in that it's about this freelance mm. cameraman played by Shinyu Sakamoto and a lot of the film is footage from his camera but also about the same amount of it is just... Us watching him with his camera looking Which at things, creepy, basically. creepy, kind of, like, placing us in his position. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah, so like, this was two years before Inland Empire. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, it does have this... I mean, it's, digit it's digitally shot, I think, and it's got that kind of... 
janky like, as fuck. It's got the, it's got this it's got this like waving uh or sort of like a meandering camera to it basically. Like it's nothing is ever like especially fixed with it. Basically what happens is he he, he he there's also the implication seems to be he kind of like collects like videos of weird shit including like snuff films and stuff like that that's but, um and what happens he is has those specific parameters for the weird shit because he says it can't be things that people acknowledge as weird it's got to be something rooted in the everyday but it to, but has some link to other realms of experience he's got this thing yeah, yeah he's got this fascination especially with with terror and he is seeking terror because he sees in the underground in the tube in uh, one day and he films this and this is shown on the news and it's a really good sequence how, how, how they frame this. He basically, he watches this uh, man stab himself in the eye into his brain to kill himself. And there's this really, uh, just a really well, good bit of filmmaking of him watching this, that's my water. Uh, that's so loud. Okay, okay, I'll just take it off and not put it back on again. Yeah, okay. We're you... not going to do any editing on this episode, so that's stay. <laughs> uh, he uh, 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 and there's a sequence of him like watching this on the news with it pixelated out, obviously, uh, but then pausing it and then watching it up to that point. You know, in his own raw footage of it, and mm-hmm. kind of like pausing it repeatedly to try and just like focus in on like the expressions of this guy's face and mm. I just wanted to like point out it's like it's interesting you you flag up that detail because that is interesting like, why is he doing that because does he he's watching the unedited version but he also needs to know that people are shocked by it I think that's some element of what's going on there yeah he and there's this um there's this sense that it what I mean the most obvious like ref, reference here I don't I think this one must have come out before Martyrs but it just made me think about yeah, Martyrs, Martyrs was a 2008 lot. 2008 it made me think about Martyrs a lot because both of them share this fascination with um, this idea that in well, Martyrs' case it's physical pain and in this woman's case it's it's terror that through these extreme emotional states we're able to transcend reality or transcend our perceptions of reality in some mm-hmm. sense and what what this film is really dealing with or, or, or like the case is kind of making is that this limit experience of sheer terror acts as a kind of primitive return essentially because we get uh, the plot I should probably sum yeah, up the yeah. plot a bit sorry so he after he, like he becomes fascinated with, with this man's suicide and he comes to believe that um, underneath Tokyo there are these tunnels uh, underneath like uh, the sewers which he, which, he, which he penetrates and he meets the old man's ghost there and the old man, and, and the guy's ghost basically tells him sort of like and like he uses like a, the word Agatha and shit like that, and um, so there's a line for the film because like one thing that I think is actually a weak spot of this film is the narration, and we do have some. And I don't know if this is just bad translation or weak writing of the Japanese, but we do have lines like, "Do I have the courage to open the door to the passageway of terror?" Oh, so the passageway of terror is something he can only see on his camera. Yeah, yeah, that's that's nice. Yeah, like so that. he yeah, so he goes underground, he meets the ghost, and the ghost calls this from Agatha and mm. so on, and the talks- ghost. Ghost is the ghost of the guy who stabbed himself yeah, in the yeah, eye, yeah. and the top of all this realm is like haunted by uh, by the Deeros, the detrimental robots that Richard Shaver wrote about in in, in the Shaver it's, mystery it's stuff. The Hollow Earth, the Hollow Earth, and 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 like he penetrates into the depths of the Hollow Earth and finds a subterranean realm, and within the subterranean, that which he, he refers to as the Mountains of Madness. Thank you, Lucy. Yes, and he finds this uh, naked young woman chained up in this kind of alcove there, mm. and he. And then the film just jumps to they're living in this flat now. Like, he's kind of, like, trying to keep her alive, but she won't eat or drink anything. And he's getting, like, these phone calls that sound like a guy with a vocoder sort of, like, um, like fucking around with him. And eventually, through happenstance, he discovers that she drinks blood. So he starts, like, feeding her from his own blood and then does the Hellraiser thing of, like, killing people, including his wife, to bring her more okay. blood. But, and yeah. at this point in the film, it's suddenly, like, we suddenly get this notion that 
or he's actually just gone mad and she's his daughter and this is some kind of like disassociative experience and that's what I thought maybe this was a bad film but it turned out no this is actually an extremely good film because it then undermines that explanation that we've been given as well because the Deeros show up again because the Deeros fucking show up again and it suddenly and the film ends with him returning to his flat after seemingly abandoning it because he's realised this is all just madness and discovering that she is still there, this like this, this Dero woman that he's brought up with him and he slices his mouth open to kiss her so she can drink the blood and revitalise herself and the two of them just descend into the subterranean realm again and the film ends as it began with kind of like shaky cam footage of his terrified eyes so the film ends with us having no real idea of what is and isn't real but like there is all like there is some like really obvious like thematic stuff here like a lot of it comes from just like well delivered bits of expository dialogue just talking about sort of like the maybe that primitive man had access could 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 see things coming through the other realms and we can't now which is why we can't perceive the dear rose it has that kind of like delicious quality which is the implication that these things that like seem sort of weird and demonic to us are in fact possibly Atlanteans or possibly yeah. like you know not like or not even if necessarily Atlanteans some like higher form of humanity which now appears to us as something threatening and demonic and it's like that's just such a cool tradition it's tapping into there because I mean that's the whole like I am legend thing yeah that's like what else am I thinking of that's like that um I don't know it goes a bit Colin Wilson like you know Colin Wilson but Colin Wilson was just der- he was extremely derivative of better writers or like more interesting lunatics. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. No, sort of like it's reminiscent of stuff like, uh, sorry, it's like the Imago sequence by Led Baron, actually, this idea yeah. of, like, of, of human beings willing their uh, a return to the primitive mindset in order to kind of like, because like, I mean, like this, a lot of this film is like suggestive of retu- entering a mm. realm beyond thought but also one beneath thought you know there's a reason he descends into the underworld you know to have these encounters and so there is like the suggestion that um that we need that the limit experiences we need are the ones that break us out of our modern way of thinking and are simultaneously going beyond modernity and a return to the pre-human and the proto-human uh and that this is that this is a violent and depraved and perverse act it's embracing the death drive and you know because by the time you know we get that scene at the end of him cutting his mouth open and kissing her it has at least been suggested to us that she is actually his daughter and so we have this kind of like uh reversed oedipal transgression here the father claiming his own daughter sexually and in an act almost of symbolic breastfeeding even of giving Ooh. his vital fluids to, like there's some very like this is a very uncomfortable film yeah. to watch it's like it, if Jacob's it, ladder was good yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. like he like he get like he fills these like milk but baby's milk bottles filled with blood oh, filler, so and there's right. loads of footage of him just like sullenly watching her suckling on these bottles filled with her mother's blood and ah, it's, mm. it's really fucked yeah. vibes in this movie hey, yeah um right. I would say that in lots of ways, actually. I preferred this to Pulse, and I think it's a more successful film than Pulse. I mean, I well, I, I it's one of those things, it's like, these are both films that are at once great and also a bit, mm, we're not sure about large parts of them, but Pulse was a high peak and a downward trajectory, whereas this was a kind of bumpy affair. Yeah, because like, there was uh, numerous yeah. points where we were kind of like, this is a stupid, why, why are we talking about this now? This is dumb. And then the film would proceed to reclaim us by talking about stuff like, well, you understand that human beings originated beneath the ocean. So, I'm just, <laughs> so, okay, yeah, I'm here again. I'm here you again. know what it's reminding me of? Led Baron's The Broadsword. You know, that bit about like, hey, Percy, you know how our, how our species proliferates itself and it's not with sexual reproduction, it's through predation. And it's like <laughs> that whole idea of like, these things are like a higher and purer form of being, but that's be- but by virtue of the purity of their cruelty. Yes. And, and yeah, and yeah, that's like kind of where like the Martyrs connection comes in as well. It's like, do you see 
mm. doozy. It's um, oh, it's really good. Film. Yeah, I really so like this, this film. departure from Foreman that was like spoilers to a go go. But yeah, watch the film before listening to the second half of this episode. <laughs> says Lucy <laughs> during closing remarks. Although uh, I might, I'm just gonna, I will obviously say you know this we'll contains a much more thorough breakdown of like the beats of the film, not just the rough outline. Oh, before we go, can I please just? I'm not certain if I have mentioned this on the podcast or not before. But even if I have, I just want to summarise the plot of Colin Wilson's Return of the Loigor. Do it, do it, do it. As an example of how... I think we, 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 we had we... so many other dunks on Colin Wilson in that episode, we forgot about the Welsh. I think... Actually, I think we did, didn't we? Okay, so Return of the Loigor, it's, and it's in one of like, the quite notable collections of like post-Lovecraftian fiction as well. Uh, if I forget my name, I think it's called like, Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos and stuff like that. It's one like a recognisable book cover. Anyway, wait, um, I have it. I'm gonna go. It's the one with the Borges story. In... Oh no, it's not okay, one. No, no, it's no. not the one with the Borges is story. It the Road in it. to it's... Madness. Let me have a look. I don't think it is. It's all fucked uh, up. This is delightfully fucked up. Where did you get this? I don't know. I think it was in like that shitty flat I was in for a while. No, this is actually just Lovecraft though. Oh wait, no, no, no. no. But there's like it's got other bits. It's got um, it's got sticks in it. No, no, this is just all love. No, you know the one I mean, the yeah, one that I has know sticks the one in it. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, all right, fucking hell. I'm sure Return... I have that somewhere. Well, yeah. oh, there it is. What? Hey! hey! Yeah, uh, same format. It's all by Del Rey. Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, H.P. Lovecraft, and it does and have that Geigery looking thing on it. Yeah, yeah, it's got the Geiger, the the, the Hella Geiger art, and it's got you know, it's got sticks Hello in Geiger. it. <laughs> got sticks in it. It's got actually my favourite story in here is the discovery of the Gulrick Zone by Richard Ooh. A. Lupoff, which is a fantastic. Shout story. out to that guy who did the blog from Goldsmiths, the Goldsmiths Anthropology guy. Justin Wood... Uh, Justin Woodman, yeah. yeah. We yeah, should catch the... up with that guy. What's... We should. I've never met him. He's, he's, he's your yeah. pal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. We, anyway, sorry, Return of the Lloyd Gore by Colin Wilson. He did a blog We're... called like Dispatches from the Gurik Zone or something. Where yeah, he, did, just... he, he spent a whole year doing like Lovecraftian thing a day where it was just like one Lovecraftian thing. A day? A day. <laughs> and one of them was our first episode. Yay. So, yeah, shout out. Uh, Return of the Gore by Colin Wilson. <laughs> okay, so... So, oh, it's so fucking dumb. But basically, it's, it's, um, oh, it's like the standard Colin Wilson thing of exploring sort of like the hidden potential of the human mind. But I'm not, I, I can't remember Lost the Plot. I won't try to remember <laughs> Lost the Plot. Human brains are too wet, so you drain them to become a super genius by drilling a hole in your skull. <laughs> no, that's the philosopher's stone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but like, but the standard. Please trick. let me describe okay. this because I'm, I, I'm okay, edging okay. the audience mercilessly here. What <laughs> <laughs> ah. do on this podcast? <laughs> Uh, basically, what it turns out at the end is that <laughs> the Welsh are descended from the rebellious slave race of the Atlanteans, which is why the Welsh are all to a man terrible people. This is something that's presented very dryly and matter of fact. So it is. Pro- I mean, this is Colin Wilson at his most most Garth Marenghi of just like of like fucking Scotch Miss territory, just presenting as like an objective fact that the Welsh are terrible and we all hate to be around them, right? And so that's a bit. And I have a reason for that now. They're all quite fat, probably on account of what they do to their burgers. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, painting their pans with potato rusks. Uh, but yeah, no, it, and God, there's so many stupid fucking bits in it. Like the Loigor, I remember that, like the Loigor, obviously, I don't know what the hell they are, but evil psychic monsters, and they live under the earth, and it means that sometimes if you go, like, too far... Not like down, like digging into like deep subterranean like mines or something, but literally, so, like their point to the story was someone sort of like walked into a like down a sh- like a, a shallow ditch, for instance, <laughs> and suddenly like that few feet of difference was enough for the Loigor to zap them with their mind energies and make them a little bit more like the Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> We're just, just, so we're just laughing on our own like hatred of Colin Wilson now. This is a great. I feel like this is a great way to end the episode, and perhaps not this series though. Hmm. No, we have we, another. We have episode. one more. We have Although at least I'm one st- episode. We have at least one other episode. We have such fun. Why that? Well, I'm trying well, we to get stopped, a career I don't hate. So like, well, we yeah. we had to stop. So recording. I have to go back to university. We had to stop recording for a while because it was t- too dangerous for us to meet up because mm. I had responsibilities. It was very to my very family. stressful. It was incredibly st- incredibly stressful. Eighteen months for lots mm. of lots and lots of reasons, but. Uh, I agree that so coming up on the one hour mark, I think that's a very good amount of time right. to have uh, spent 
almost this will burn the supplemental yeah. episode but we've gone on all sorts of so directions. like if you never subscribe to our Patreon this is the kind of actually no this is probably a lot better than a lot of the stuff we released as bonus episodes we record because like you were right Lucy it's actually really difficult for us to record this podcast remotely mm. and I don't it's know exhausting. why because like bodies are out of organs like we have to do it remotely anyway because like Matt lives in Huddersfield and, and Corey lives in Australia and <laughs> so we have no choice but to do it remotely but I think like I don't know I don't what kind of like awful manic energy that we need to propel this podcast it only comes about when we're in the same room together with yeah. just a little bit boozy yeah well I wouldn't call that Lucy is measuring is forming rudimentary calipers with her hand to measure how far we are oh, into we, this we've whiskey we've had bottle. a fair old bit of bourbon haven't this we this was new today anyway <laughs> um I guess that just leaves us to say to the listeners thank you and uh Keep it weird. And stay signal. Yes. For once, that's not difficult <laughs> to time. And we don't have to do the whole clap routine. All right. Anyway, good fucking night. Good night. Thank you.